Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to Second Captains at the Irish Times today. An interesting thing happened in the Leinster football final on Sunday. A few interesting things happened. It, it was like a sporting event. A joke there. Yeah, loads of good scores, a couple of goals, all those things. But I noticed the biggest, or at least the most thunderous cheer, came when James McCarthy, I don't know if you remember this part of the yeah. game, James McCarthy bashed Graham Riley over the sideline with a shoulder. 50-50, the, the magic of it was that the crowd could see it being lined up. Don't think Graham Riley could see it being lined up. McCarthy stuck him over. Dubs fans all going uh, crazy. But that was a legitimate tackle, fair enough. A couple of other flashpoints where there was nearly a, a melee or a fight here or there. And the crowd just goes so wild when that happens, which leads me to believe that violence in sport is terrible, but it's also terribly exciting. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's... Uh... Almost as though the crowd itself was thirsty for blood. <laughs> You're now, what are, you, what are you saying of your average GA crowd? Can I refuse to sit here this and This is though the effect it. of gathering together in a place to watch a warlike spectacle enacted in, in two Our tribes. Our best against your best. You know, lots of thousands of faces, nobody really looking at you, de-individuation. Um, suggesting maybe that brings some uh, unpleasant human emotions to the surface. The link I wanted to make is with doping in sport, though, Ken. It is a scourge of sport. It's hugely damaging. It shouldn't happen, but it's a compelling topic. Yes. It really is exciting in its way, is doping. Well, it adds a whole other level yeah. to but, yeah, your t- experience. It's like, the de- of- it's like the departed, you know? Are they, which, whose side are they on, you know? Can I really believe in this person? Who are they really? Are they simply wearing masks? When you see Chris Froome, mm. so hairless, so apparently bloodless, so fast on his bike, so inarticulate in his own defense, uh, the question, I suppose, is, is he uh, for real or is he a replica? Is he really inarticulate in his own defence? He seems to be able to handle the questions, albeit he was getting annoyed yesterday. I suppose inarticulacy is is relative. I mean, Chris Froome is, is well able to speak. He's clearly not a natural public performer on anything other than a bicycle, which is, which is fair enough because that's all he needs to be. Um, the press conference yesterday he intended with Dave Brailsford, the principal of, the, of Team Sky, and... You know, it was it was a difficult experience for him. I felt sorry for Chris Froome. He's just uh, put in this amazing uh, performance on Mount Fontu. He's the first uh, British rider ever to win on that mountain. 
really what he did was was incredible. In the old school sort of way of watching the Tour de France, you're thinking, well, Froome has just entered legend with this ride. And of course, what actually happens is they just have to talk about doping for the next 15 minutes because his performance was so good that people are saying, nobody's that good. So uh, I guess we're going to hear um, one thing that he had to say, which is... Um, he talked a bit about Lance and that he had been compared to Lance on the Sunday uh, somewhat unfavorably. And he had said, well, you know, Lance isn't... Lance isn't well, they said, you, you reminded me of Lance Armstrong out there. And he said, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. And the question then said, you said you were honoured to be compared to Lance Armstrong. He said, I'm not quite sure I actually said that, you know, Lance isn't a cheat. I'm, I'm not a cheat. End of story. But the, this is how the press conference wrapped up. This is the last question to him. And it was just before himself and Dave, Dave Brailsford made their way out of there. Chris, I know you've said that you're, you're happy to answer these questions, but is all of this actually beginning to tarnish for you the whole experience? I just think it's quite sad that we're sitting here the day after the biggest victory of my life yesterday, quite a historic win, talking about doping. And quite frankly, I mean, my teammates and I, we've slept on volcanoes to get ready for this. We've been away from home for months. Uh, training together, just working our asses up to get here. And here I am basically being accused of being a cheat and a liar. And that's not cool. That's not cool. No, he wasn't really being accused of being a cheat and a liar, though. He was being asked a lot of questions about doping. I suppose the insinuation. That's the way he chose to take it. You know, got a little bit, little bit defensive. Um, it's Well, he was being accused by the tone of the questions. And I think it's fair to... It's certainly fair to question these achievements. A guy who, who puts in an incredible Tour de France performance like that. I mean, yeah, most of the incredible Tour de France performances over the last, over a long period of time, a lot of them have been questioned. Yeah, I think it's fair to ask the question and it's also pretty fair for Chris Froome to be annoyed about it. This yeah. is a question Lance was asked repeatedly during his Of course, career. I mean, he was asked, it's, and he, I suppose, got very well practiced. He's a very different style from Chris Froome. I mean, you hear Froome, he's not really a, a public speaker, you know, he, he gets a little bit, you can see his voice is a little bit nervous, and the way that he says everything is very mild and understated. Um, this is how Lance used to say it. My case, I mean, I came out of a, of a life-threatening disease. I was on my deathbed. Do you think I'm going to come back into a sport and say, okay, okay, doctor, give me everything you got. I just want to go fast. No way. Would never do that. So Lance, you know, has already sort of painted this scenario in just a few words. You know, where we can see Lance and his doctor, and Lance is just—he's gone mad. You know, he's asking the doctor for drugs for performance-enhancing drugs, and he also has brought in the the fact that his his life was in danger as well to to raise the very stakes at the start of that dramatic scenario. And then you know he's got the voices and everything. It's almost like a, you know. One man show. It almost is like a one man show. It's a very different from from Froome. Lance turned out to be lying. Hopefully Froome will turn out to have been telling the truth. The problem for Froome is that there isn't really really yet seem to be any way by which he can you can confirm someone was a liar, but it's very, very difficult now to prove your innocence. Yeah, Tyson Gay and a bunch of Jamaican athletes have, I think, accepted maybe that they're not innocent, albeit they've tried to argue that in, in certain it's cases varying anyway. degrees of guilt, that's yeah, all. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that later on. Jerry Kiernan's going to be on the programme today. Some very big news I want to mention early on, though. You ready? Oh, here, we, here, here we go. Okay, here we go. Second Captains Live, our first outside broadcast of 2013. <gasps> I haven't finished the sentence yet. Will take place. Will take place on Thursday week in Dublin with thanks to the Irish Times. 
The show will feature Richie Sadler, Eamon Dunphy, Ushie McConville, Anthony mm. Moyles, and Jason Sherlock. It's happening in the Grand Social in Dublin on Thursday 25th. So please come and join us. We have missed you quite a lot. Don't dare look at us in the eye while we're working. Ken will punch you if you do that. But uh, we, have, mi- we have genuinely missed you. Looking forward to getting out again. Doors will open at 8 o'clock. Tickets are extremely limited. So if you want to be there, have a few drinks, have a bit of a laugh, then just get in touch by emailing live at secondcaptains.com. This is a separate email address for this uh, particular live show. Live at secondcaptains.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, with your name, phone number, and the amount of tickets you're looking for. You must be over 18 to be there. By the way, the live show will celebrate a very special announcement we're going to make next week. <sighs> so many secrets. It's well, a different announcement. Well, I'm announcing the show next week. Next week, we'll announce the other announcement. You tell me nothing. Only. Email us live at secondcaptains.com. Our thanks again to the Irish Times and to the Grand Social in Dublin. Let's lift things here a little bit. I mean, it's been fine so far, Mark, but I feel we need a real joy, real sporting joy here. This was Limerick's uh, Liam O'Hearn commentating for Live 95 as their hurlers won the Munster Championship. Declan Hannan well blocked down. Referee has a look at the watch. Out for a 65 in favour of Limerick. And with that, we'll see the last action of the game. The Limerick supporters are ready to engulf the pitch. We're about to see the mother and father of all parties. 1996, 17 years since Limerick last won a Munster senior hurling title. The 17-year famine is about to end. There's people on the field already. I think James Maguire will be just advised just to blow the final whistle. And let's get this party started at the Gaelic ground. Shane Dowling to put the cherry on the icing. It's gone right and wide. It's all over! 17 years has been too long. And the wait is over. The wait is over. Limerick and a Munster Senior Hurling Nice moment for the good folk of Limerick. Uh, yeah, not particularly brilliant singing. Um, I've got very high standards in this area. I mean, Joe McDonough knocked it out of the ballpark back in 1980 in the Hogan stand. But nevertheless, um, just the sort of emotion that you're looking for, if not quite the, the singing voice. But I mean, it was a big weekend all over yeah. for local radio. Uh, emotions ran high across the country. Liam Spratt of South East Radio got so excited during the Wexford Kilkenny Leinster under 21 final last week that he actually misplaced his false teeth. Uh, now, in his defence, Wexford did get a last-minute goal to beat Kilkenny. So, I mean, if you're going to lose your mind over any sporting event... Or your teeth. You know, in more to the point, yes, indeed, on, uh, then a last-minute goal for a Wexford team to beat Kilkenny, you know, you might as well go all out then. But, I'm I mean, intrigued, though, by the... Just what happened? I mean, is it, can, has anyone been able to reconstruct it? Well, I, they put a, a message... The word the that comes page. to my mind is, is a word that you see written in comics, and it's fatui. Yeah, P H T O O E Y, something like that. Just as the at the moment of climax, Mm. the false teeth shoot from his mouth and describe a lofty parabola into the crowd, and presumably get ground uh, 
ground bite the fragments, someone, bite someone in the crowd. Heels, yeah. yeah, well, no, I mean, I, I, it wasn't audible over the, the broadcast. We'd have the audio otherwise. We'll but. talk to Limerick's Declan Hannon a little bit later on. Nick Faldo has offered Roy McElroy another pearl of wisdom ahead of the British Open. He's he tends great to like drop that, them right? in once Nick before great each like big tournament. We'll chat about that with Howard Clark and Maggie Clerken. Football now, though. Oshin McConville, back from holidays, Oshin. Thanks, Owen. Oshin, nice colour and all the rest Some of it. colour, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's the most tanned man in Crockett Lead. Cream. Anthony Moyles is with us as well, Murph. Anthony was dripping with confidence last yeah. week ahead of Leinster final, but he was... Well, do you want to apologise to the people of Dublin? I mean, they've, they've housed you, they've given you a good job, and you come on here and slag them off last week. Yeah, I don't. Was I slagging them off? No, really? you did actually yeah. tip them to win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, yeah. yeah, I was confident to a point. I, I would say, yeah, no, it was a pity. Um, I thought I thought Mead were, were were very much in the game, you know, and I thought actually, I, I I don't think they were they were minus seven. I thought they were probably you know two or three points, but kind of last five ten minutes they they, they had the chase looking for a goal, but. Um, I thought they were impressive, you know, and like I mean, a lot of people have said, oh, they've asked questions of Dublin and da da da. But like I mean, we we kind of pointed it out last week, and something that I was looking at was that midfield battle, and um, and also trying to expose the Dublin full back line, and they're the two kind of areas that they went at. Um, and they did so successfully at times. Well, I thought Bar Paul Flynn, um, he was the one real outlet that that Cluxton had. Brian Menton was probably a little bit off him on on kickouts, um, but I thought they did very very well. Apart from that, they made Cluxton go long with kickouts, which you have to do. Once or twice, he Jared Brennan vacated six, and he found Keno Sullivan with just a little pop kick out. Um, but most of the time, he was kind of forced to go long, and then it was up to Gillespie and Brian Mead, and then the Mead half back lines just to get in on breaks. And I would say they won the majority of the breaks around the middle. You know, yeah, and I, th- I think what they have done actually is they'll. It's probably going to uh, prompt a change in the Dublin midfield. I would have thought because that's off the Dublin kickout, off the Mead kickout, as you said last week. Paddy O'Rourke was free to go as long as he liked, uh, and they were able to win primary position, possession at midfield rather than winning it with short kickouts. And I think Dublin will actually probably have to make a change there because they don't really have the sort of aerial dominance that you would expect of a team that we're all well, expecting. Well, Michael McCauley's good in the air and Keno Sullivan's there more for his athletic and running ability, yeah, but I think, than... Like, yeah, McCauley is not tall. He's not a particularly... You know, no. he's six foot one, no. which is not tall by intercounty midfield standards and Keno Sullivan isn't really capable of, of catching a kick out. True, and I think if you put... like if, if you go further down the line, you say you have the two O'Shea's in midfield, right? So Mayo, okay? Two massive men who can win their own kickouts, And then you put even Neil Gallagher and Rory Cavan in there. They're six foot plus. Like, I mean, definitely Gavin has kind of went, okay, people are people are working our kickouts out. Because I was watching Cluxton. What they do essentially is he has two or three... Well, he's probably about three or four different options. But if the half-forward line, i.e. Flynn or Connolly, make a break and go out to the each side, if they're not hit... They then kind of just leave that area and then actually someone like a Kilkenny comes from really, really deep and actually will go up all the way up to that kind of space that's vacated. Um, now, me got caught out a few times with that, but the one thing Murphy did show is that O'Sullivan, he does a lot of work around the pitch. He's not a midfielder. He doesn't play midfield for Kilmacud, you know. So he was caught out a little bit. And that's where I felt Meade would have to make the advantage count, uh, which was midfield going up, winning their own ball, and winning at 60 yards from their own goal, whereas Kildare were trying to play these pop little kickouts and then attack from there. Um, unfortunately... There was a spell there in the first half where they needed, they probably missed about, like people are saying, 1 6. I thought the goal chance, he should have just fisted it over the bar, Damien Carroll. But they definitely missed four good chances, and they needed to probably be four or five ahead at half time, not just the one. 
Oshin, are these issues that are going to be, if they've been highlighted on Sunday, are they going to be potentially fatal in a, against a bigger team? Yeah, I think against a better midfield. Uh, I think uh, when you put Dublin under pressure, high up the field, um, it looked as if you know they were under pressure. And when they kicked the ball long, they don't look good. You know, when it turns into a dogfight for that ball in the middle of the field, invariably they don't win that many breaks. You know, so uh, I think the better teams to play against, plus the fact that the teams like Donegal who prepare essentially just for those sort of uh, situations uh, are going to put the likes of Dublin under severe pressure. And one of the things that I've seen over this past couple of weeks is that at least on on Sunday, Dublin sort of stuck to exactly you know what they had done all through the year. I think one of the problems, even when I, you know when I was away, like for example, Down getting beaten. Mm. Uh, one of the things was they played open, expansive football against Derry. They were forced to completely change that and play against Donegal in a very defensive sort of style. Again, they opened up the second day. Whereas any of the real good teams now, the Donegals, the Dublins, just keep going to stick to exactly what they've what they've planned all along. But I think Dublin were exposed in a couple of areas and and me me did a couple of goal chances. Even though there were only maybe half chances, I had to take a couple of those. Dublin were under severe pressure on Sunday, and and to be honest, like. No Anthony's here, but I, I don't put me in the top seven or eight teams in the country. You, you, know? you do, you don't. I don't. And they were managed to put Dublin under pressure. The yeah. other issue there is that I, at half time at Croke Park, I heard a lot of Mead fans around me trying not to get too excited. They were all, and I literally heard the phrase Dublin are a second half team about four or five, yeah. uh, from four or five different people around, which is probably true. But there's a danger in this idea of being a second-half team, I always think, and it's shown up with Cork on a couple of occasions recently. If you give yourself too much to do yeah. in the second half against a good team, you're actually not going to come back. But I just think the fitness levels are scary and, the, and what they can bring off the bench. Mm. You know, they're going to they get stronger as the game goes on, and that's the way it's going to be with them. The, the, the strange thing is that the Dublin team we talked about four or five years ago used to start like a house on fire. You know, they used to start, you know, games and all of a sudden there were six, seven points up and, and essentially for a lot of teams the game was over and now we're talking about, you know, if they can get that right. You know, because I think if they can start a lot sharper, which they should be able to do in my estimation, if they can do that, they have a couple of things they need to sort out up front as well. I mean, there's a couple of times I've seen them this year, well, not a couple of times. And every game, there's been players in better in better places, and they just haven't shuffled the ball on. And that's something that they really need to work on. Because I think if you work on something like that, you can turn that around very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, to give the that pop ball that first thought is the right thought, especially when you're playing in that full forward lane. You don't get, you know, you see if you uh, if you hesitate for for you know two seconds. You know you're going to be surrounded by flares, and if you haven't made the right decision by that stage, chances are you're going to get done for over carrying. That brings a huge amount of frustration to the likes of Bernard Brogan, who's not playing with a huge amount of confidence. And you know, as I say, I think the first option for all those boys seems to be the right option. Is that a symptom of having a really strong bench? Funnily enough, that there are guys there that are very eager to get on the scoreboard, and so. Their first thought is, listen, you know, Dean Rock is on the sideline here. Kevin McManaman is going to be brought in on at some stage. I don't want to be the guy taken off. And as a result, they're snatching at their own shot instead of saying, right, the key issue here is that the team wins, not that I have, you know, a couple of numbers uh, in brackets in, in the paper. The I, would, I would say there's a lot of that. I would say there's a lot of that. But I think if you sit back 
you know, and it's it's difficult to do when you're actually in that moment, you know, playing the game, when you're in that squad, when you're in that situation. But I think if you if you do sit back for a second and say, right, look at I'm not playing with I'm not playing with a huge amount of confidence, things aren't necessarily going that well for me. What I need to do is I just need to go out and for the first fifteen minutes I just need to do the simple thing. I need to get myself into the game and when I'm in the game I mean, nobody's saying that Baron Brogan's turned into a bad player overnight. In fact, I still rate him as one of the top three forwards in the in the country, but uh, he's not playing with a huge amount of confidence, and it's getting to him, and you can see that. And if he could just do the simple things for those first 10, 15 minutes, you know, I think it would maybe turn his his game, but also his season around, you know. And that's 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 an Achilles heel that Dublin have, you know, and that, and that pressure's being brought on not only... Like, I mean, it's great to have a kind of pressure within a squad of you know competition for places that's absolutely fine but you you see Kevin McMenamin when he comes on now everyone thinks yeah. Kevin McMenamin you know he's so direct but he literally got stripped of the ball every single time he got it the other day because the media lads knew what's yeah. this guy going to do they put Donald Keoghan on him who, 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 who skinned him last year Went with him, went with him, and eventually he ran him down a dar, a, 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 an alley and then just stripped him of the ball. So but He was so eager to make, a, make an yeah. impression. Absolutely, he, but he was. But instead of doing the simple thing, which yeah. was even just lay it off and go again, every time he got it, he went to do his usual trademark run. You know, so Which has yeah. worked in the past, it would be the argument Absolutely, there. well it has, of course it has. But what you need to do is, you can see it. Like, I mean, if I was a Donegal defender or Mayo defender or whoever I was now coming in, you're saying to yourself, you keep this man, you get in his face, you keep him quiet for the first 15 minutes. You can imagine Bernard Brogan now next day if he starts and he score, you know, he hasn't scored from play in the first 15-20 minutes and as Ushin says which needs to be done, you just give a simple ball, you get yourself into it because Gavin is an intelligent manager, he'll see well actually he's doing what he should be doing for the team but if all of a sudden you're taking pot shots from tough angles and you're dropping them into the keeper's hands it's going to be curly finger time. What's funny is that some of the players you're talking about there are the more experienced guys whereas it's the likes of Kilkenny and Paul Mannion in his first year who looks like he's doing exactly what you're talking about Oshin, which is just use the ball intelligently Mannion took one pretty awful pot shot in the first half but by and large the younger guys seem to be coming in maybe they've, they've been managed by Gavin so they know what he wants. Yeah, but I also think, for me, one of the things that I found amazing was people used to say to me about going to big matches as I got older, in your 30s, you're going, you're playing in the big games, all their quarterfinals, semifinals, whatever it is. I used to be more nervous the older I got. Whereas when you're when you're younger, you just you go out and you're just going out to play a game, and it's almost like it's an, almost like an ignorance, you know. But you're you're going out there and you're just saying, right, I'm just going to go out and express myself. Well, as you get older, you think. You've got a couple of doubts. You've got have I still got the pace? Have I still got the quality? Have I um, do I deserve me place in this team? Is some young fella uh, snatching at my heels? Uh, things haven't been going that well for me. All those things sort of, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. getting top of you, build, build on you. And as I say, I was always more nervous. The older I got, the more the more nervous I was getting into games. Yeah, so players should just retire 24, 25 <laughs> before it all starts crashing in. So it, it, it seems like despite the fact Dublin passed the test, came through strongly in the second half, certainly Ocean, you seem to feel that on the basis of the performance they're actually less likely to win. You don't think they're going to win the All-Ireland now? I, I've, I haven't thought all year they're going to win the All-Ireland. They're still, they're still going to be huge saying it. I think they can, they're all things that they can improve on. Yeah. They're all things they can, can sort out, especially that forward thing. That can be sorted out in a, in a meeting. That can be sorted out in a meeting and say, all right, boys, listen, you know, if somebody's in a better position, let's pop in the ball. Let's, as I say, first thought is the right thought, and let's move on. Let's not get bogged down in all this thing, because the more you hear that sort of thing, as a forward, you, that's the last thing you want to hear. So, 
you know, you co- you get to a stage where, you know, as it forward you, and you just got to meet up and you just got to say, right, if somebody's in a better position, let's pop it. Let's do the thing early and let's do it often. Anthony, do you think they'll be caught by a better team? Um, they potentially could be. Um, you know, look, I, I think Meade were... I think they worked on, on, on the weaknesses that, that, that were there evident before the game. Like, a lot of people now are coming out and saying, oh, you know, like, I mean, there's always been, oh, after the fact. The fact was that Dublin had weaknesses, and, and any manager were to solve the Mick O'Dowd and the boys obviously worked on this. You know, the weaknesses, were, which were exactly the weaknesses that were exposed. The full-back line, Rory O'Carroll doesn't seem to be having a good year at all. He's under a lot of pressure. He was under a lot of pressure with Stephen Bray. And you notice... When Joe came on, you know, it didn't go well for Joe, but it actually, it, the whole energy of the team dropped for me when Joe came on. Like, I mean, Stephen Bray and Mickey Newman were causing serious problems in there. The ball should have been continued to be put in fast and crossfield ball and let them go one-on-one against their men. When the change actually happened, you know, you could see it kind of deflated me. Dublin still have unbelievable capacity obviously like I mean Kilkenny is a guy who's doing what Ushin is saying he's just giving little pop passes and people are saying he's pulling the strings but he's not he's just actually playing with his head up a bit and he's saying where are their lads in better positions give them the ball go again um, Mannion is just I think he's absolutely serious like I mean he, he was Mickey Burke was literally right on his toe for a few of those balls and he stuck them over he played unbelievable his finish even for the goal was fantastic you know quite a difficult chance but Dublin I think Bastic and these guys will probably come back into the reckoning they'll probably have to change a few things around midfield wise um, but I can't see them altering their shape that much to no, be honest no. with you Meath are going to be playing the winners of Toronto and Kildare in the last round of the qualifiers which either way would be quite tough who are you expecting to come through from that first game oh that, that's in Newbridge you see like I mean it's, it's a, it's a toss up you know it really is like Tyrone or Kildare will be happy with their last 10 minutes against Loud you know I thought that was a potential banana skin for them 1-5 in the last 10 minutes which will bring them majorly buoyant into the game um, Tyrone though are, are, are going well I would feel uh, I mean for me, from a me perspective, it's a great tie because I think you'll just focus on that. You'll have it up. I think if you got one of the lesser teams, it would be hard. But boy, you, this is this will certainly lift me. But I think Tyrone might just sneak that. Two provincial finals coming up this weekend. Murph in Connacht, uh, kind of a novel one there with London in it against Mayo, but the uh, potentially one-sided encounter. Yeah, well, there's Donegal two. Donegal and Monaghan. And yeah, there the potential for two big uh, for two big victories here. And Mayo London is. You know, it's going to be a pretty strange occasion, but I mean, I, I, I don't know that there's a lot you can say about it. I mean, I think it's amazing that London are there, but, um, you know, given the way Mayo have already accounted for Gola and Roscommon, I don't think, you know, there's going to be any... Power and physicality and pace, those kind of basics are going to be the issue f- for London against Mayo, aren't they? Seeing as Mayo uh, could blown every other team away. Yeah, I think the spread is maybe 15 or 16 points, yeah. you know, and the one thing that, you know, the one thing is that there's, there's Mayo lads coming back from injury. Um, who are on the bench, mm. who are starting players, and they will be absolutely jumping out of their skin just even to get 15, 20 minutes. So you're not hoping as a London player, oh, here comes a sub, because he will be coming in going, right, I'm going to stake my claim for the quarterfinal. Yeah. So that's a big, big worry. They're going to run the bench, and that's bad news for London. Yeah. Which exactly. Is, yeah, which is, the, which is the key. The Ulster final, though, I mean, I've been at the last two Ulster finals, having not actually ever experienced it before. And I have to say... It's an amazing occasion because it's it's very similar in a lot of ways to the Munster hurling final. I think in that there are guys who will go to the Ulster final regardless of who's in it. You know, yeah. to a huge, huge extent. And I mean, obviously, you've had great days. And I think was it your first Ulster final? You scored two seven, which yeah. is and uh, the individual scoring record uh, for an Ulster final in history. I mean, I th- it is an amazing occasion. I, I found that. Um, 
in the main stand in Clonus, kind of the 15 seats in all directions from where the, the cup is presented, it's like kind of the golden circle of <laughs> Ulster football, right? So the first time I was there, I remember seeing there was like Brian, uh, the, the last few years, obviously, Donegal's been Brian McAniff was there sitting beside Joe Kernan, who was two seats away from Mickey Hart, who was two seats away from, you know, Father Brian Darcy. You know? <laughs> but it, it is... It is and like, then you, Murph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a ridiculous thing. But, I mean, they are great occasions. They are unbelievable occasions. And, you know, the very fact that Monaghan's in the final is just unbelievable for them. And they'll take an absolute huge following to it. But uh, I fear an absolute massacre on, on Sunday. Really? Not so much on the scoreline but one of the things that Monaghan did continuously against Cavan was carry the ball into the tackle and get stripped time after time after time and if to do that, if to do that against Donegal there's other consequences not just getting the ball taken off you're getting your head taken off or something yeah. you know what I mean because uh, Kieran Cuse who played corner, who played full forward for Monaghan the last day and was very very good got all over the field got break balls and all but he, he likes to do a dummy solo Mm. And I uh, suggest that right now that he <laughs> try and take that yeah. out of the armor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, t- he takes that out of the armory for uh, for this weekend in particular. Maybe bring it back in for the next qualifier game or something. But uh, you know, I just fear that uh, Monaghan again don't have a plan. To sort of they got over the lane against Cavan, sort of by accident more than design. I think uh, in Conor McManus to have a, the one true quality player. Um, but he's not going to get in the ball. Would you prefer they just go and do whatever yeah. they've been doing, though? Yeah. Maybe just give it a shot rather yeah, than trying to implement a plan. It's not there. Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather they go or go and have a go and and have a real cut at them and and basically try and run it at uh, at Donegal from deep. Everybody keeps saying that the way through the blanket defence is not to run at it. I think if you get the right players coming at the right angles uh, and and going at, as I say at pace, because that's one thing that Monaghan have, especially as a forward line, of a serious amount of pace. To get that, they might get enough free kicks, you know, to to keep themselves in the game at least for fifty, sixty minutes. But I just, I just fancy Donegal to, you know, to steamroll them in one way. Yep. The other qualifier games this weekend, Murph. Well, Kildare and Tyrone, we've already discussed. Galway Armagh, Machine, mm. um, nice easy draw for you there. We celebrated when we got that. <laughs> already, <laughs> he texted me last night. He said we're planning for Cork already. Good stuff, <laughs> which is nice. Uh, but in fairness, what is it? Ten thirty-five in your in your two qualifier games so far. Yeah, we're set up for a big, big fall. So uh, yeah, we get it right. Yeah, I, I, I somehow I don't see it happening. There's Wexford and Leash. And the winners of that play, Monaghan or Donegal. And then Derry and Cavan. And I, I think I saw Paddy Bradley tweeting on Sunday that it's all set up, or on Monday that Derry uh, are all set up for an all-Ireland quarter-final. In fairness, they did get the easy draw in that they yeah. got a home draw and they got London in round four. I fancy Cavan to beat Derry though. Do you? Yeah, I fancy Cavan because say, they've had a system and they've stuck to it and they've been a work in progress. And to be honest, you know, as far as the way they're set up and the way they've gone about their business, I've been impressed with them more so than 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 any well, than a lot of the teams I've seen this year. Okay, there's a big there's a big six seven teams out there, but Cavan's just coming nicely behind that, and they're building all the time. I think you know they could get a win at the weekend if they did. It'd be absolutely massive for Cavan football, and uh, they're a work in progress. And just keep an eye out for them over the next couple of years. It's not going to happen overnight, but. Keep an eye out for them over the next couple of years or a team to be reckoned with. Is it bubbling up, Anthony, just lastly? The hurling championship seems to have been just incredible this year. Maybe the football's been a bit 
slower to yeah ignite. kind of overshadowing it a bit I suppose but yeah I think this weekend um, like you could get one or two shocks you know the, the Galway are mad like I mean Galway have to be stung by like only limping over Waterford the last day you know like I mean they have to be there has to be a sting in the tail somewhere and Armagh mm. probably the worst thing is to beat you know a team by 27 odd points or whatever it was um, yeah it is it's coming nicely I, I agree with Ushin I think Cavan are a team that Wexford Leash will be tight tight affair but uh, it's coming nicely now yeah it right. really is Anthony Ushin great stuff thanks cheers lad nice theory you espouse there Murph I hadn't actually thought of that before that when a player is on the field he might actually try a little too hard because essentially that you can have too many good substitutes sometimes and it mm. can affect negatively the players on the field maybe Ushin McConville is just being polite I don't know but he agreed with you uh, well, I mean, it wouldn't be Oshin style to be polite just for the sake of being polite. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, 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 it depends very much on the character, I think, of the player in question. I mean, if you're picked on the first 15, then the attitude of many intercounty players, I'm sure, would be, right, well, I'm on the first 15, so let's go tear into it. But there, there are guys, different psychologies at play, I suppose, where a guy is like, right, I'm lucky to be on the 15. And in the first 15 minutes, I have to do something pretty special here yeah. or I could be getting the, the shepherd's crook, you know. So I think that there are certainly players out there who think like that, who overstretch things and who uh, are too anxious to, to do something for themselves rather than do something for the team. And it can, it can manifest itself negatively from a team perspective, even though you do have these, these brilliant players on the Souls bench. No, it's a good theory. I like it. Well, you know, I have my moments. Rory McIlroy cut quite a disconsolate figure at the Irish Open a few weeks back. If you remember, he was essentially admitting that he's a bit lost as he missed the cut. He needn't have worried, though. All he needed ahead of this week's British Open was another pep talk from his soulmate, Nick Faldo. And Faldo Judy delivered it last night via the media, of course. It's the best way for friends to chat mm. these days. There's a lot going on in his mind, says Faldo. You need 100% concentration off the golf course, practising as well. Ideally, you should go to the club at nine in the morning, hit balls all day long and leave at five. You have to do that. You have a 20-year window of opportunity as an athlete. Concentrate on golf, nothing else. Well, Howard Clark has played in more than 20 British Opens, works now for Sky Sports, and joins us, as does Maliki Clerken in studio of the Irish Times, of course. Maliki, is Fallo lording it a bit over over poor McElroy this day? <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, I think, sort of self-fulfilling prophecy here with Fallo. I think he... He took a punt early in the year uh, and said that changing clubs wouldn't do Rory any good. Uh, Which he was right about, it seems. Well, I guess he probably was, but yeah, you know, who's to say that Rory wouldn't have played terrible all year anyway? Uh, it, I think it's a bit of sort of, if Faldo says it, then then it must be true kind of thing. And he's he he hasn't been happy enough to sort of sit back and, and allow his words to run freely. He's certainly piled on uh, at any opportunity. I, I mean, there's obviously... There may well be something in what he says, but I mean, he presupposes that uh, McElroy isn't concentrating on his game, that uh, he is just turning up and playing whatever tournaments uh, he he's down to play. And like, I'm not particularly sure how he can know that. Like, does he know Rory's daily schedule? Like, does the fact that Rory has a a, a, very, a famous girlfriend and gets photographed with her uh, in his downtime? Does that mean that he's not playing golf when the photographers aren't around? Like, I don't know how um, how he can be so sure that McElroy isn't putting as much into his game as he was, say, this time last year. Yeah, Howard Clark, great to talk to you on the programme. What do you think? Is there... Uh, Faldo's not the only person who's alluded to maybe a lack of focus in McElroy's game. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in that, in the, the focus 
seems to be, appears to be, from outsiders. And to be honest, you know, Faldo is within his rights to say what he wants. But I don't think he's actually made these comments directly at Rory, has he? Yeah, no, it seems to be about Rory. He says uh, he, he was asked about him and he spoke about him. He says when you retire in your 40s and 50s, uh, hopefully you have another 40 years to enjoy it. But just concentrate on golf. He says that's my word. They're my words of wisdom to Rory. Yeah. Well, it's a good statement. It's a very sound, round statement by Nick Faldo. Um, he's said a lot to a lot of players. I think he's tried to help a lot of players. Um, He's in his 50s now. He's working for TV. We know he's a a pundit, as you like. Um, I don't know very much about what he says because I don't hear him. He's on American TV a lot of the time now. Um, I think he always wanted to be a bigger, uh, more adult person than he actually turned out to be, Nick Faldo, if you, if you don't mind me saying that, because he, he, he's won six majors, after all. He is you know, a, a multi-major champion, and we haven't got too many of those uh, from Europe, never mind anywhere else. But I think the comments that he, he could actually keep them quiet. Uh, for me, I would, I would actually think about keeping them quiet, keeping them personal, and saying them to Rory. From what Faldo does um, most of the time is it seems to be I know he's under the under the eye of the press all the time, but he seems to want to put this information out into the public domain all the time, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do that. Have you got uh, any fears about where McElroy is at at the moment? Uh, no, I don't. To be honest, I know he's, he said he's lost at the Irish Open. That was a strange comment, and I think the press there. Um, the, me- the media full stop, you know, Sky Sports, the RTE, and the written press, all were looking for a sound bite, with, you know, a little clip, a little clip of saying something, something like, I'm lost. Well, that's brilliant, because that, it sells papers, it creates interest from the public. Um, he does say a lot of things very quickly, like I used to do when I was a kid, and I still do now, I'm afraid. <laughs> And I think, well, I could have said that a bit better, or I could have said different, made different words, um, put them out into the public area. The, the, the players today are very adult in what they're doing, and I think he, you know, some of the things that Rory has said don't really fit with with everybody. They, they, they're not actually to him. But as far as he's concerned, am I worried about him? No, I'm not worried about him. He's won two majors. He's a young man. He's got a wonderful lifestyle. I think he's changing his lifestyle around a little bit too much. He needs to have a solid base, that's for sure. Um, His private life is his private life. To me, I think the one good thing that Nick Faldo has said there is that he should actually get to the golf course early in the morning, practice, and just give 100% to that game because this game is the one that will see him through to his 50s. Whether he wants to play in the 50s, that's only up to him and his choice. But he's got a long career ahead of him, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't rush him into winning the next major because we'll only want to rush him into the next major and the next one after that. And he's got plenty of majors ahead. I said at the start of the year that I thought Rory McIlroy and, and Muirfield would go together because I, I played my first Open Championship at, in 1972 at Muirfield. I was a young kid, and I'd practiced for three days. I was practicing until, practicing until 10 o'clock at night, 10.30 at night. 
uh, going through qualifying rounds, etc., etc. So I was putting everything I could possibly put into the game, and I got into the Open Championship, and I got in late, so I went round Muirfield twice, and I played the fairways, and I played the greens. But when I, f- I hit my opening tee shot, and I pushed it probably 10 feet into the rough on the right, I found the rough. And then I realized I hadn't practiced out of the rough enough. I hadn't really got the grips of Muirfield and where to miss, if anything, and where where not to go as much as where to go. And I think those those are the things maybe that Rory is missing out on in, in his life at the moment, in his golfing life, I should say, uh, that he's actually not focusing 100% on his job in hand. He's thinking it's going to turn round. Um, he's wanting it to turn round, but it's very difficult uh, to force things. He's got to let it happen. And if, he's, if he becomes natural like he was, well just a bit more than eight months ago, it'll be fine. Yeah, this is the kernel of the McElroy. How hard does somebody as gifted as him have to work for it to become natural again? Because he's not Nick Faldo, he's not Potter Carrington, he doesn't really operate like that, Malachy. No. Yeah, and, and, but the thing is, he has, you know, worked hard his, his whole life. Like, his whole life has been golf since mm. he was nine years old. Uh, you know, like, we all know like that his his headmaster told him to leave school at 15 to go and work on his golf game you know like the the idea that he became the number one golfer and is still the number two golfer in the world on the back of just you know turn, rolling out of bed and turning up is ludicrous because it it just that's not the way it has been i mean he has put countless thousands of hours of his life into it um but i i do take the point that that we look at him and we don't see Parry Carrington. We don't see the the 12 hours on the range in him. Um, but I'm not particularly sure that Parry Carrington was that at 24 either. You mm. know, that, um, I think, and, and, uh, but I do think that the, the thing is, it is literally, as Howard says, only eight months since he was winning every golf tournament. Yeah, and we could start in. looking very ridiculous in a few months. We could start looking ridiculous in a couple of days' time of if he goes and wins the British Open. Yeah. But it's probably because so many things have happened at the one time. The ma- yeah. He's changing management company. Looks like he's setting up his own management company. Uh, the Nike issue is not going to go away until he starts winning. You were at the press conference when that was all launched, Maliki, and he didn't seem to want to engage with you and you were trying to ask him a little bit. Can you just explain what you were talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was that was funny. The, the launch was in... in uh, hotel in Abu Dhabi and it was a ludicrously overblown Nike launch. It was hilarious actually to be there. It was a, a, a really enjoyable experience actually. Um, but there was something like 25 cameras and I actually counted up something like 48 lights surrounded him and all this. And he came as as if walking out of water uh, and the, the spume went up behind him with the Nike logo uh, projected across it as if Nike were telling us that not only do do we own golf, not only do we own sport, we actually own water itself. <laughs> and Rory came walking out and did a little kind of back and forth with the Nike um, um, PR person, uh, and it was such guff, like it was such you know, uh, you know. And what can you tell us, Rory, about the driver that everyone's talking about? Yeah. And like. Literally, the driver had just been launched. Like, no, literally, nobody in the world was talking about it, except some some uh, boffins, I guess, in the Nike oven, as they call it. But um, so they threw questions to the press, and and I just asked because it, it was the only interesting question was, um, would he have to change all clubs? And I so I said, do you have to like do you have to go all fourteen 
can you keep your old putter as Tiger Woods did for the first 13 majors that he won with his Nike clubs he had his own putter he had his uh, Scotty Cameron putter um, and before eventually going over to the Nike one and Rory, in fairness, I've interviewed Rory a few times before, and he, he was just kind of he kind of went, um, well, you know, I'm really excited about uh, the clubs I, I'm going to use, and um, uh, I'm really excited to get started. And I kind of went, well, we're we're all delighted for your excitement, Rory, but uh, that wasn't what I asked you. Are you? Is it, do you have the option to to switch putters if this doesn't work out? straight away and he says I'm not here to talk about the contract and that was fine it you know he was obviously he had he had the, the whole of Nike sitting around him and there wasn't much he was going to be able to sure. say but it, the funny thing about it was that the next day the next evening was the evening that um Paul McGinley was announced as Ryder Cup captain in another palatial hotel in, uh, elsewhere in Abu Dhabi. It's a uh, tough life you have there, man. Well, it's a very tough mm-hmm. life. Whatever about me, I was only a day tripper. It's a tough <laughs> life these people have. But um, what was really nice that night was that um, McGinley did his press conference and as he was going through his press conference, um, gathering at the back of the room were Paura Carrington, Shane Lowry and Rory McIlroy who all just came in to, you know, give their their sort of a bit of support to their friend. And uh, I actually went down to the back of the room where we all had our computers and Rory was sitting in my seat. And I kind of went, listen, man, i got I got to work here. And he went, oh, Jesus, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I said, uh, hey, listen, about that putter thing. And he goes, don't worry about it. He says, yeah. I've got much tougher uh, questions in my life. I'll get much tougher questions again. So he's completely cool about it. Like, he didn't particularly care. Yeah, and it's fine about it as long as there's no massive impact on his game, which so far there seems to have been, Howard. I don't know how much you, uh, of his lack of form this year, you're putting down to that, but was Nick Faldo right on that one? Did was, did Rory McIlroy take a bit of a gamble in changing clubs and has it backfired? I don't think there's any question about it. I don't think the question, you know, it's happened to many players before in, in the past. You know, look at our Open champions. Paul Laurie changed, was tempted into changing clubs because the company that he was with didn't, didn't want to pay the big bucks that Laurie expected. Tony Jacklin, go back as far as the 1960s and 70s. You know, you're looking back, Harrington himself changed everything. Um, the, the things that I look at are, are facts and figures, and he's played something like 44, 45 rounds this year. And uh, I can't count too many rounds in the 60s. That's where he needs to assess. He really had a big chance at the Masters this year. I look at the play, and this is not down to the golf clubs, where he had a, a good opening couple of rounds. He was two under par after two rounds. And then he had a 79 in the third round. Okay, he hit back with a 69 in the last round, but you know that's almost irrelevant. That 79, he, that's the one he has to be worried about because that is nine shots too much, too many for him around any course, any course that he plays, unless it's a howling gale. These are the problems. There, is too, there are too many in Europe. Um, well, the ones that account for Europe. I mean, there, there's only two European tournaments, and he's missed both the cuts, hasn't he? the Irish Open and the PGA Championship. Mm. He's missed both the cuts. So the twice he's played in Europe, he's missed the cuts. That's not good, um, you know, because that means he's coming back and he's, I don't know, it, it feels like he's not putting the time in, you know, and all that type of thing. But I can't say that. I don't know what he does away from the course. Phil Mickelson goes away to another go- golf course and practices. So he's away from the media, media height. 
is, is away from the hype, is away from the pomp and circumstances, is away from the eye of everybody. He can get onto some, into some practice and quietly practice. I don't think Rory is doing that, but I don't know that he isn't. So I can't say. The clubs, going back to the clubs, the clubs are a big issue. See, I heard from one player this year that the driver, um, that two or three of them had been trying out, was actually unplayable because it, the ball came off so fast you couldn't control the draw spin or fade spin. It's hard enough anyway today because the ball springs off so quickly. You know what I would expect, Rory? If I, if I was a, some, in, in on the Rory act, I'd say, look, go and take some irons out, some old irons out, some maybe Mizuno or maybe some Titleist, maybe your old set of Titleist, unless you sold them, and take the old drivers out. And just say, okay, just have a couple of games with those and just see if there's a big difference. And go and work with the Nike people and get these, these, these clubs uh, matched up exactly. I'm sure he's done that with the shafts and the grips and everything like that. But get the flight. The, the trajectory is the most important thing in golf for a player of his stature. The trajectory controls the distance that you hit the golf ball. We've seen Tiger Woods for many years um, now, it seems like it's many years now, for many tournaments, let's put it that way, not control the distance of his short to mid-irons. And that's totally unacceptable for a top pro. You can't control what you're doing. You need to be hitting around the right distance, whether it's 10 feet short of the flag, 20 feet past, or this, that, and the other. It's so important to get that trajectory right that maybe that is the underlying problem. But I'm saying maybe. But when, when he's had what is it, 44 or 45 rounds, he's only broken 70, well, maybe on two hands, 10 or 11 times it is. Yeah. It's a problem. All right. Howard, if it isn't going to be McElroy, and maybe it is, who do you think is going to win this weekend? Who's your tip? I really think it will be McElroy. Really? <laughs> I really do. I think, I think he'll actually come out and just right, say, okay, what were you all boys, what, what, what were you all thinking about and worrying about? It's, it's, a, it's about people trying to help him. And, you know, there's too many people all of a sudden trying to help. I noticed the, this, this morning Lee Westwood has gone to Sean Foley to, teach, to, be, to be coached by Sean Foley. Yeah. Is that convenience or is that a step forward? I don't know. But he just happens to have moved to America and he's, he's kind of changed everything himself. We'll have to wait and see on that score. But he's, he's, a, lot, he's a lot further on in his career than Rory McIlroy. I remember meeting McIlroy for the first time in Portugal he was a very uncomplicated kid waiting for a car to go to the airport to go on to the next event. And that's, you could see that that was all that he had in his mind. He was just waiting to play. He was loving the game. He spoke to me. I'd never met him before. I introduced myself. Oh, he says, I know who you are. He said, um, he says and what you did. And he says, really? I said, well, that's very nice of you, but thanks very much. I said, I, I'm, I'm only interested in what you're doing now. He said, I said, where are you playing next? And he told me his, you know, his little mini mini um, schedule and we went on from there I said well good luck to you I said I hope things work out I said but don't don't be pushed into doing this and that and the other I said just do your own thing and I think that's the important thing you know he is being pushed into doing this that and the other when he when he's, he's got very little time he's only got 24 hours in a day same as you and I and you can't fit it all in in that time it's, it's quite amazing you know, people ask me what I'm going to do if I retire, and I say, well, there's only 24 hours in a day. I'm, I'm sure I can sleep for eight of them, so I can actually spend the others doing something constructive, you know, walking my dog, 
talking, watching TV and relaxing. I mean, there's, there's not much left, is there? Listen, Howard, it's been absolutely <laughs> great to talk to you. Enjoy the British Open and thanks for chatting. Enjoyed your company. Brilliant. All the best. And look forward to McElroy winning. He's my tip. Lovely. That's Howard Clark there. Great stuff. Malachi, are you going along with the... Well, McElroy tip yeah, after yeah. our chat Howard about has completely convinced me yeah he's absolutely in crisis every, he needs to concentrate yeah, and yeah, all those things yeah. but he is going to win gonna the win British it, Open yeah. this weekend uh, well I will obviously uh, I, can't, I can't let a major go by without having a, a rake of uh, career destroying bets so uh, I will uh, Rory at 28 to 1 <laughs> uh, it looks you know you kind of have to do a bit of that uh, weirdly I like uh, another guy who's um, uh, Equally messed up in the head, if we believe everything. I, I think it could be Sergio's week. Really? Yeah, yeah. The, Sergio's he's a great record at the British Open. Like he's nine top the book, ten. The bookies are going to love to see They're you coming. <laughs> no, yeah, but Sergio and an out of form Rory McIlroy. <laughs> yeah, big time. Uh, don't don't worry, I'll, I'll waste other on, on other players as well. Maliki, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Second Captains at the Irish Times. Available Tuesdays on iTunes and IrishTimes.com. Lovely stuff from the, the guys there. Howard Clark was great. I didn't, I didn't actually ask him what his retirement plan was, but he delivered it anyway. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like yeah, it's a pretty good plan for retirement. Count up the hours in the day, do some sleeping, walk the dog. I like the forensic way that he went about it. There are 24 hours in the day. How are we going to divide this equitably amongst you know my three passions, which are watching television, sleeping, and walking the dog? If he's truly passionate about walking, Murphy, be a 12-hour day, man. Well, or getting, sleeping. I mean, he could sleep oh, for sleeping, 12 hours as well. Say, I mean, yeah. I mean that, that could work. Well, 12, well, whatever. No however golf, Ken. However you want much, to slice it. 12 hours is too much sleep. If you sleep in 12 hours, you know. You're well rested. Wake up, sleepy head, because that's too much time to spend in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? I'm, look, I'm, you know, no, seven no, I hours. I appreciate where you're coming seven from. Seven hours is, is fine. You know, eight hours is okay. Any more than eight. And, uh, yeah, yeah, there's something going on there. Time now for this. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? You got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Born and bred, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a little place called Navin. All right, Owen, it's time for another week of Pierce Brosnan's Emigrant Shoutouts. And we begin this week in East Timor, where Ed is currently residing. He says there's an abnormal amount of Arsenal supporters there for some reason, which is interesting, Ed, in a deeply uninteresting kind of way. One of, of the way. less interesting facts, I would imagine, about East Timor. I mean, if you're going... He, he had a limited amount of space, perhaps. <laughs> you know, internet cafe in East Timor, maybe, who knows. Uh, but he decided to share that with us, and we appreciate the effort. Paddy Callanan is dossing on the job in Belgrade. Sure, what else would my employer be paying me to do every Tuesday, he says. Hmm. Um, I think the answer is in the question there, Paddy, but nevertheless. Peter McDevitt assures me he's no relation. Oh. I'm sorry, Owen. I, well, I mean... I, if you go far back far back enough I'm sure he has some kind of relation but he's tuning in from Nakuru in Kenya celebrating the Kenyan victory in the African Rugby Championships he presumes however as do I that South Africa didn't actually enter a team in that but nevertheless we'll, we'll, we'll take it uh, James Drudy is sweating like a whore in church in Toulouse France which is a beautiful turn of phrase uh, and I'm sure it's making you a major hit with those that pretty mouth of yours is making you a major hit with the sophisticated French girls down there James 
you pig. Uh, but the email of the week comes in from John Vather in uh, South Korea. Greetings. I'm an Irishman who's been living in South Korea for the past two years. I'm also a Pierce Brosnan enthusiast and a fan of your sports coverage. I assume you can imagine my excitement when I became aware that these three defining characteristics of my being were going to be combined in a slot on your show. Very few Irish are seen in this faraway land, with its summers as sizzlingly hot as Pierce Brosnan as James Bond in Goldeneye, or winters as chillingly cold as Pierce Brosnan as Remington Steel in Remington Steel. Mm. I approached through the proper channels, sure that I would get a shout-out. Then as I listened eagerly to Murphy at the very first P-Bezzle, I was shocked to hear the words spoken, and a shout-out to Shane Clifford, who is living it up in South Korea. Not only was I not chosen, but I was supplanted by a fellow emigre who I know. What irks me more is the living it up comment. Living it up? You must be joking. Life outside of Ireland is not like permanently residing in a Ja Rule music video from the early 2000s. Uh, I'm a proud Jackie, and with Shane living it up Clifford hailing from the kingdom, we are natural enemies. So I took this gripe to him immediately. He maintains the living it up comment was of Murph's own invention. If this is indeed the case, I'm fine with not getting a shout out. But please give accurate representations of the lives of those who have had to flee our native island, be they by plane, coffin ship, or otherwise. Sincerely, John Vather, working, paying taxes with the occasional bit of crack in Gwangju, South Korea. So I can confirm that the living it up comment was added by me. So just put it on the record, and I hope that John and Shane can... can they know. both have their shout out now. Yeah, exactly. So, so everyone's the winner. Uh, Sweet Cherry 69 asks, Can Ireland dwelling listeners use hashtag PBASO to give shout outs to immigrants? We feel left out. Hashtag apartheid. No, Sweet Cherry 69. And your Twitter name sounds like a porn bot. If you're living in Ireland and you want a hashtag PBASO, I'm sorry, but. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Email editor at secondcaptains.com, facebook.com uh, forward slash secondcaptains, or at secondcaptains on Twitter. It couldn't be easier to get in touch. If you're anyone except Adam and Joan, you're using that Taffin clip. Stop stealing our gags. Derek Ling joins us now, former Kilkenny midfielder, to chat about what's been an incredible season, Derek, but just Kilkenny in particular having, it's probably a more roundabout route than they might have expected to have, but they're into the quarterfinals. They're still hanging in there. Would they have accepted that at the start of the summer, do you think? I think, I think it's obviously not the, the route you'd like to go down. Um, to be waiting in the semi-final now is, is for Kilkenny have been at for the last couple of years. Um Taken last year out of a they they lost the provincial final, but you had you know one one extra game really to play, which wasn't you know which wasn't too too hard on them, and it actually suited them because they they got a chance to get players back um, into the team. But this year certainly a lot uh, it's been a tougher route. Um, you'd have to say though, you know they're still they're in a good place at the moment, I think, because uh, in fairness, the last two weeks has been you know I've been at both games, brilliant atmosphere. Um, and I think the Kenny supporters have really enjoyed it as well. I'm not so sure the players, it would have been the route they would have been happy with. But, you know, they're still there in with a great chance. And I still think it's going to take um, it's going to take a huge performance to get over Kilkenny. Whatever team gets over Kilkenny at this stage, um, they're going to have to get everything right. Because I think actually Kilkenny are going to get a little bit stronger from here on in. I think they'll have players to come back. Michael Fenley got a run the other day. Um, a little bit rusty at the start, but finished the game really strong, I thought. And... You know, he kind of put Brick Welsh on the back foot a little bit when he was, you know, starting to dominate towards the end of that game. So, um, Henry, again, probably didn't, you know, the pace was a little bit too much for him. But again, he has a couple of weeks now to get up to the pace. So, if anything, I think Kilkenny are going to get a little bit stronger. A couple of things there, Derek. Just on Shefflin, first of all, is there an argument to just take a gamble um, 
in the, in their next game. Take a gamble against Cork, rest them, and just. I know you can never assume that you're going to be in an All Ireland semi final, but just take that risk and have them 100 percent right for the semis. Yeah, I, I think from from a player's point of view, though, when you're coming back from injury and you feel as if you're fit, you know you're mad. To, you're mad to get going, and I think to to sit in the bench when you know that you could actually make some contribution. Now, okay, it didn't work out for Henry the other day. He has another probably this week will be. You know they'll get a couple of hard sessions in. I'm sure they'll play a bit of hurling. Whereas next week it's aimed towards, I suppose. Um, touch and you know there won't be any contact I'm sure Don it's more towards freshness and having players ready to go at the weekend but I for Henry I, I think um, he really needs another week under his belt and you know the fact is he's not able for 70 minutes at the moment but again if if he's available for 15-20 minutes in that game if it's going well well then I, I think it's I think you need to I, need, I think you need to bring him on I don't think uh, coming into another semi-final without any hurting done only five minutes of the Tipperary game I don't think that's going to be kind of um, I don't think that's going to be a runner really because uh, when you get into an All-Ireland semi-final stage the pace of it is 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 so fast and so quick that uh, to come up to that kind of pace without any action um, to back to back it up for you yeah. I, I, I don't know if you're able to do that Yeah it just needs a bit of a bit more competitive hurling under his belt at this stage. Yeah, you mentioned the supporters yeah. there as well Derek have they been enjoying it a bit of a novel route this year? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's a kind of like the the atmosphere in Nolan Park a couple of weeks ago was um, was unbelievable. Uh, I've never heard uh, I've never heard the kind of the cheer that went up when Kilkenny came out that day. You know, it was really, and I think it was the fact that um, there was a, a high possibility that Kilkenny could have went out of the championship um, that evening. And I think supporters were kind of right. Well, if they're going to lose, we're going to clap them off, and you know, we're going to shout them to the bitter end anyway and support them. And um, so there was a real kind of, there was a, a kind of, uh, there was a tense atmosphere from nearly two hours before the throw in, you know, it was kind of, no one knew what to expect because everyone expected a huge performance from Tipperary as well. And again, last weekend, the Kenny probably weren't firing all cylinders. They had a couple of poor wise in the first half against Watford. And again, they just kind of left Watford in that game. And it was kind of, kind of like the first game where Claire didn't kind of finish off Wexford. Wexford had a storm and finish. It was the same in Watford. And, Watford could have snatched it if they had, um, you know, they won a ball near the end and if it was played in a little bit better to Seamus Pendergast, I think, you know, a score at that stage, it was game over and it was Watford's match. But I think, you know, they'd emptied the tank um, at that stage. Kevin Moran was, and Brick Welsh and a few of these guys were outstanding the last 15, 20 minutes of that game and they just um, ran themselves to a standstill. And, I, you know, I don't think they had anything left really in the tank after that in extra time. But, um you know, from from a supporter's point of view, like talk about value for money the last two weeks, I don't think, I don't think any any supporter will forget it in a hurry. It's um, it's been, you know, really um, entertaining, fair, and you know, you couldn't. I don't think anyone, you know, looking back, you couldn't have any regrets about coming this route because um, it has been it has been so good. The, when Waterford uh, played the ball into space, uh, and at times they used the ball very, very well, I felt, particularly in in, uh, in parts of the first half. I mean, do you think is there a template there for for Cork? Because Cork obviously have a collection of very risky, quite untried and tr- and untrusted uh, hurlers in their forward line, but they are they are they do have a couple of really cultured hurlers. Is there a template there that Cork can look at from how Waterford performed on Saturday evening? Absolutely, Kiran, and I think they the styles of of play are kind of similar enough, actually. And I, I saw Cork and Kilkenny this year in Nolan Park in the league, 
and a similar enough kind of um, team to what we saw last Saturday. Their stick passes are very good and they're always well able to pick out uh, their own players. And Watford did that really good around, I think, their half-back line midfield area last Saturday. You know, they weren't hitting, hitting any aimless balls. They weren't panicking when they kind of got caught up in possession. You know, if they had to go backwards, they were willing to do that and start again. And, um, you know, they got some great scores from out the field. And the one thing about Cork is that um, they do have always got risky, they've always got risky hurlers and cultural hurlers, as you said. And, you know, they they play a similar game to Waterford played last Saturday. So I would I would see something similar again um, in two weeks' time. And they do probably... They're probably a little bit stronger than Watford, I think, in the forward areas, areas as well. Um, you know, Watford had a couple of young players last week. Now, Jake Dillon, I thought, was very good. and um, But there's a couple of them still, you'd say, needs a year or two of uh, more experience. Um, whereas Cork kind of have that. Um, Luke O'Farrell and, you know, Parry, Patrick Horgan, sorry, um, obviously looking like he's going to miss the, the quarterfinals now, although I, I, I'm sure Cork will appeal that. But you know they have they have herders like that who have a good bit of experience championship hurling under the belt last few years, um, so I I would see you know I could say Cork having a really good crack at Kilkenny now in two weeks. Yeah, so Kilkenny taking a more roundabout route than expected. Limerick in the meantime have taken a more direct route than a lot of people would have expected at the start of the season. Have you been impressed? Were you blown away by them on Sunday? Yeah, I mean Limerick. Um, what you have to admire by them is they're they're kind of they're sticking to a game plan this year and you know the when they're able to call on the players of Shane Dowling, Kevin Downs and Niall Morn, um, you know, they, they make a critical contribution to the team. And the last couple of games, their introduction, you know, in the last twenty minutes, uh, against Tipperary and again and again against Cork on Sunday was you know, was pivotal because they they just kind of they blew the opposition away in those last fifteen, twenty minutes and it was the same again Obviously, Cork has a man down at that stage, and that he's it's going to tell. But you know, kind of Limerick stuck to their game plan. They still had an extra man back, kind of sweeping, you know, and they kept it safe. And they kind of, you know, very measured, I thought, and very patient. Um, because in some cases, some teams don't know how to deal with um, playing against a team uh, fourteen men, and sometimes it can actually work in the other team's favour because they end up having more room inside. Whereas, I think John Allen was very shrewd on Sunday. He kind of kept the extra man back. Um, just really closed off the half back line midfield area, clogged it up and still used their you know, their inside line, the the pace in their inside line to get over you know, to get over Cork essentially. But um fantastic for their supporters, fantastic for Hurling that they're in an all Ireland semi final now and I, I not many people would have thought that Limerick and Dublin would be the two teams waiting for um, you know, the likes of Galway, Kilkenny and Cork to come through the back door and, and clear so it's uh, it's been a brilliant championship so far from that regard. Absolutely. One part of that inside forward line for Limerick. Declan Hannan, I'm delighted to say, joins us now as well. Declan, congratulations on the win. A couple of days now since the match. Have things calmed down at all in Limerick? And they have, of course. Yeah, you know, it's two for now. So I think we've been all celebrating, Donnie, kind of. We enjoyed it, like, but um, we'll have to knock it on and get ready for the, the uh, semi-final and hopefully it'll go well for us. The scenes on the pitch afterwards were just extraordinary. Can you remember even what, how you reacted to the final whistle, what you did? Yeah, I remember just, I, I was next to Niall Moore and we just hugged each other like an inch or you had about two seconds and the whole field was covered with Limerick supporters and all, which was, um, it was incredible. Like, I mean, it's great to celebrate with the supporters as well, like, you know, because they've been following us for long enough, like, through bedtime, you know, so but, um, I was unbelievable feeling now and everything, so we're just over the moon still. Uh, Niall Moran was actually a teacher of yours, wasn't he? 
Yeah, that's it. So I've, yeah. he, he's not made last year. He has like Lance Kulrish. So it was nice to meet him now straight away. Like, and you're, I presume you're not still calling him Mr. Moran or anything. No, Rooster we call him though. <laughs> we won't even ask. But listen, Declan, the, you would have been aware, obviously, how much this would mean to the people of Limerick. Maybe, I suppose you can't think about that in the build-up to a match, but to have that moment afterwards with just celebrating with people and the night out, I'm sure, was great as well. That, that, those are the kind of things you do all the work for. Well, that's it, exactly. I mean, like, it, it, all the tough training, like, in January and February is kind of well worth to know, like, today and a Tuesday after the Munster final. When, um, when you see the sheer lake, like, and all the people's faces, like, and all the good wishes you're getting, and um, it's just incredible, I mean, like, but so we're, um, we're lucky to have Janelle over as, like, you know, he'll get his down sort again and get his focused on uh, another job at hand in a two weeks' time. Yeah, he doesn't. He's not the kind of guy I think to get too too wound up about things. All right, but whose idea was it to sing the Sunday game theme tune in the dressing room? Um, I, I only saw a video of that because I was still outside, like so. I didn't even, I wasn't even in the dressing room when it happened. But um, I said any sound of car could have been saying, you know, in fairness, but if it was mentioned, it was just going to. I bet it was going to go out anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we would have expected Queen or, you know, Simply the Best or something, like one of the cornier ones. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the choice, all right. Derek, talk to us just about Limerick's, not so much just their achievement. Obviously, Declan has to, you soak up the soak up the success and then you have to start looking forward. This is something that Kilkenny have probably mastered over the years. Do, do you get the sense that that's going to be easy to do? Or is there, uh, you know, clearly Declan is hungry for more success, but is it difficult to come up to that mark again in a couple of weeks' time? Do you know, the fact that you have um, four or five weeks of the semi-final is probably a good thing, um, particularly for um, particularly for Limerick, because it does, you know, you have to enjoy those moments uh, when they come around. And a huge, you know, a massive victory for Limerick. And uh, you, we all saw what it meant to supporters and players on Sunday, and it was fantastic. And I think you have to enjoy those moments. And uh, I, But I, I think John Allen has that experience as well from Cork. And I think... Um, and, I I have a feeling that the Limerick players will know that they have a great chance of getting to Crow Park in September now, and um, and it's amazing when you you get that bit of momentum, you get a few victories under your belt, and uh, you know winning a monster final will bring them on no end confidence wise as well because you do like when you experience moments like that, it does drive you to kind of to achieve that again, and you want to experience that again, and and I think that's what drives most players, and I I know from from my own playing days. That was always, you know, at the start of the year when you're looking at the year ahead, you always want to get back to that place, be it uh, Crow Park or whatever it is, on all Ireland's final day, and get to experience that again. So I think um, I think the Limerick players will, will I think, uh, they'll enjoy it a few days, but I have a feeling that they'll knuckle down. I think Don Allen's influence will be critical there, and I think the experience that he's had, I think, you know, said, look, there's a lot of hurting left, and... Um, you know, there's bigger and better things to go on and do now, and that's the reality of it. The reality of it is, if they get over 70 minutes in August, they're in the All Ireland final, and who knows what can happen after that. Declan, I'd say even just the thoughts of going back into training must be must be pretty good as well. Getting the squad together, your training in into July, into August for an All Ireland semi final. Not that many hurlers get to do that in any given year. That's it, exactly. I was just thinking this morning, like. Um, Usually this time of the year, people in Limerick are kind of, the year's kind of over, or nearly over, you know, but um, we're lucky enough this year to be able to be in a position to watch an Atlantic quarterfinal and know that we'll be playing the winner to one of them, you know, so it's, um, it's an exciting few weeks, you know, but um, we're just looking forward to it anyway. 
Yeah, and it's an open enough championship, I think. You can't look ahead of the semi-final, but six teams left. Limerick are one of them, so you, it's, it's not a bad place to be, it's fair to say, Declan. Oh, I thought it's great, sure. We're delighted, you know. And then, as you said, like, the championship is very often this year, and it's um, been very exciting all the games so far, like, and, and they've been tight, like, and a few strange results, like, but um, we're there, we're there with our with a chance, like, and so we're going to take it if we get um, on the day, you know. It's... Um, up to us now to knuckle down and get back training and just focus again and hopefully it'll go well for us yeah well listen Declan enjoy the next few weeks thanks very much for chatting to us and to Derek Lane great stuff thanks for talking as well thanks very much that Limerick uh, win and the whole story there is absolutely brilliant it is one of many great things that's happening in the hurling season Murph although as we have noted Kilkenny are still there Mm. So this very open season looks like it might end up with Kilkenny winning the All-Ireland. Yeah, it kind of carries a warning. You know, and I've read quite a few articles saying, you know, it's an amazing summer of hurling. And I agree with all of it. It has been absolutely yeah. brilliant. A number of really close games, really brilliant. Like Limerick and Dublin winning their provincial titles. It's amazing. And it is a really, really good story. But we're still probably going to end up with the team that won, that has won nine of the last 13 All-Irelands winning again. And so it's really, you know, it, it depends on where you're coming from with it, really. Is that the, the ending that a season like this deserves, that the cream rises to the top? Or would it be amazing to see one of the other five counties that are left in it, uh, one of them beating Kilkenny and going on and winning the All-Ireland? I mean, you know, I think, I think hurling would, lo- I think the hurling as a sport would love another county to come and win it. Kilkenny are still the favourites, though. Tyson Gay, America's fastest ever sprinter, is in the dock as are a number of Jamaican athletes after returning positive tests over the last few days, or at least that news coming out in the last few days. Interestingly, Ken, we touched on Lance Armstrong earlier on. Now, Lance, although he did apparently give the UCI a nice bit of money for their fight against drugs to yeah. buy a machine for that, aside from that, he, his stance regarding doping, sure, he very vehemently denied that he ever took any drugs himself. Yeah. He wasn't a big fan of other people spitting in the soup, as it were. Christophe Basson. No, he was a fan of cycling. He's a fan of cycling. So he didn't like people talking too much about doping and being getting too on their high horse because Tyson Gay is one of those guys who has, in athletics terms, been on his high horse a bit. Yeah. Joining, uh, telling people don't do drugs, it's bad. I, I mean, Lance, you know, it was, was funny. You know, I mean, I remember seeing him once. He's talking to Bob Schieffer uh, and he's talking about how the ancient Olympics was rife with doping. Yeah, they, they used cocaine. Yeah, cocaine. And you're thinking, that's pretty interesting. They evidently discovered the new world thousands of years before Columbus. Uh, this is uh, this is a fascinating stuff. Like, you know, he would talk about that, and then he'd obviously say it was clear he was actually fascinated by the subject of doping. Where when his denials came, he was often, as we played that clip earlier, uh, he was quite colourful sometimes. In you think I would do that? No way. You know, and he, you know, he he had no problem sort of pushing the lies out to the max. Um, and maybe that's sort of set a bit of a trend in terms of um, athletes now, when they're doping, if you just flatly deny it in a, in a montan say, no, you know, I'm not doping, there's a question. It's just not convincing enough. You need to be a bit more colourful about it. So like Tyson Gay, you need to say, oh, if I, you know, if I was to dope, my mother would absolutely kill me. <laughs> you know, my mother just, I just wouldn't be able to look my mother in the eye anymore. The Marion Jones, you know, printed up in massive, huge, big, big letters, I don't dope yeah. in her autobiography or whatever. You've, got, know, to, you've got to do it. It's like, that. that is the new baseline. That's the new uh, normal standard of denial. Delighted to have Jerry Kernan on the line to chat to us. Jerry, good to talk to you on the new programme. How are you, Owen? Good, good, good. Yeah, just wondering, first of all, how damaging this is to the sport, to track and field in general, what's happened with the Jamaican athletes and with Tyson Gay this week? 
It's damaging to track and field in general. It is probably devastating to the people in Jamaica because uh, for the last 10 years, athletics track and field has been their number one sport. It has transplanted cricket in the affections of the people there, largely started, I have to say, by, uh, by Asifa Powell. So for them, it is, it is hugely, hugely disappointing. They're going crazy over there. If you read the editorials from some of the newspapers, uh, uh, very, very strong words have been spoken. For the rest of the world... Well, I suspect they'll probably feel, well, you know what, it's track and field, it's like cycling, it's an individual sport, you know what, it doesn't come as a huge surprise. For me, uh, with, 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 with running being, being my whole life and this, the sport that I'm most closely identified with, it is very disappointing because I actually believed in my naivety. I actually believed in Asafa Powell, I believed in Tyson Gay, primarily for the very scientific reasons that I actually liked the guys and I believed what they said. And I'm, and I'm willing, a part of me still, Owen, willing to believe Certainly in Asafa Powell's case, because I don't know the ins and outs of, 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 of Tyson Gaze, that Asafa Powell, and it's entirely plausible knowing, as I do, the psyche uh, of, an, uh, of an athlete and how neurotic they are and how insecure they are, that perhaps he took stuff in good faith and believed in the person who handed him the stuff, which I believe is, was a new guy um, brought into the entourage to to help him get over all the injuries he had. Now, maybe this guy, a Canadian, was trying too hard or whatever, but he gave him stuff, and it had the, um, the stimulant oxy, uh, oxyphalene or whatever it was that was in there, which, is, which has, well, it's, it's, I don't know how long, what length of time he'll get, but he certainly won't be uh, in the World Championships in August in a month's time. Yeah, well, certainly Stephen Francis, the coach over there of Asafa Powell and others, says this has nothing to do with us as in the track club they all train at. We're not disowning Asafa. All we're saying is that this is his personal employee. This is the Canadian guy you're talking about, Chris Gerob. I'm not sure of the exact pronunciation there. Yeah, but Chris Gerob is his name. You see, the thing about it own is this, is, and it's the same as well in, in other sports. I mean, you take the likes of uh, McElroy, you take the likes of, uh, of, of the tennis player, they have this huge entourage and they all have to justify their existence there as well. And I suppose you do, you do, being in a very pressurised situation, you do perhaps um, place a lot of faith in these people um, and that they'll all do the right things for you. Because I know when I was an athlete, all I ever wanted to do was focus on training and all I ever asked my coach was, what do I run today? And I didn't have I didn't have to think about anything because I believed in what he was actually saying to me. Now I don't know what I would have done. He said to me, "Look at take the take take the stuff." I would have had faith in him. I, I, I certainly would, and I would have no reason not to. And maybe I mean, have things changed that much? I mean, are, are athletes nowadays are they less vulnerable than we would have been thirty, forty years? So. It still comes down to personal choice, though, surely, Jerry. And every athlete is responsible, and I think they've at least accepted that, that whether it's inadvertent or whatever it is, and they say it's inadvertent, we don't know, but it's in their system, they're banned substances, and it's, it's quite black and white in that way. Well, it's quite black at that, but I mean, this is the reason why strict liability was brought in. In other words, you're responsible for what's going in because a lot of athletes, a lot of people were saying, I didn't know what I was taking. Were, were they saying that this, I mean, was this true? Could we believe them? Could we believe them 100%? Could we believe, could we think maybe, maybe, maybe it is so because they said, right, strict liability, that's it. Whatever's in your system is there because you allowed it in. But you know, and I know that it's possible to actually make mistakes. Um, I mean, we had a situation of another Jamaican girl last year was a a couple of years ago, a top runner, I can't think of her name now, and she had very poor dental work done to her in Jamaica and she went to China to run a race and she was in terrible pain and went down and she took, a, she took something to alleviate the pain and then she tested after a competition. You know, I mean, okay, 
um, what was she supposed to do in, in that situation? So, I mean, we're dealing with humans here. We're not dealing with robots. And maybe you let your guards down. But look, at I know I'm on a very slippery, slippery uh, ground here because when you look at the roll call of all the top sprinters in the world, most of them have fouled out either majorly are in a very, very minor way. But there's a question mark about practically most of them. Yeah, and most of them also come from Jamaica, Jerry, which is which is strange because Jamaica's population is 2.7 million people. It's a much smaller island than Ireland. Oh, it is, but, but, it, but it's an island, it, I mean, it's an island, uh, Ken, where everybody wants to be a runner. Ever since Asafa Powell burst on the scene and broke the world record all those years ago, everybody, I mean, I mean, I hear Sonia talking about, you know, being out there and going down to a track meeting and there's thousands of kids all wanting to spring I mean, it's like everything else. I mean, every sport wants its hero, and you look up to these people, and you want to emulate them. And particularly, I mean, it's the grind down in 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 Jamaica. It's a very very impoverished country, and they see what they, and they see Asafa Powell, they see Johan Blake, they see uh, Dan Quarry before them, and they see, of course, Usain Bolt, and they say this could be a way out for us. And you know, they try out and they find that they're good at athletics, they're good at sprinting, and it's a way out from because there's not much else going on. I'd for them say, down there. though, Jerry, that in East Germany in the 70s and 80s, people maybe made similar points about the culture, the high status of athletes within that society, the fact that, you know, it was clearly a way for, for people to stand out, uh, to, to win privileges, and, and so on. But there was obviously something else going on. Uh, in East Germany, which is which is very well known. Now, the, you know, I'm not you know, maybe Jamaica. Maybe East Germany is a harsh comparison for Jamaica, but there's an awful lot of positive tests coming out of a very small country, which is winning a lot of huge uh, sprinting uh, medals. You know, pretty much the Olympics and every other competition. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, there's to my mind, there's no comparison because because you because I mean, what you would be vaguely suggesting there, Ken, is that there's state collusion. I mean, in East Germany, there was state collusion because because I mean, the athletes hadn't a clue what the hell they were taking, uh, but there was state collusion there because because for them to succeed in athletics was affirmation that the communist system, which was in place there, was the way to go. I mean, they never they never ever ever reported bad news there. Everything was good news, and their successful athletes. And indeed, there were lots of athletes in East Germany who didn't want to run at all, but there were four to do it and that's the way things were but it was a way out for them it was a way for them to get an apartment or, or a two bedroom apartment or whatever but in uh, in Jamaica I think it's much more laissez-faire you can run if you wish and you need to run if you don't wish but I mean this whole business of food supplements it, it really is the wild west it is totally unregulated you just simply don't know the labelling is incorrect and there is absolutely nothing to suggest that that these food supplements or these itonic drinks are worth worth a damn to you. And, of course, the consequences then if you get caught on something like this, because what, you, what Asafa Powell was caught on was oxyloferine. That's only a stimulant. I mean, it's not, it's, not the, it's, it's not the major end. It's not, it's not EPO. It's not steroids. It's, not, it's, not, it's nothing like that. You'd get it in a cough medicine. Yeah, it's still on the bad list, though, Jerry. And oh, absolutely. Just no, such... Yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You do, I know, you do a bit of running yourself. I mean, if you have a cold and you go down to the chemist and you, and you, and you, and you grab something, you know, you're going to have something like this in it. You know, so you really do have to be very, very vigilant. And it is possible, it is possible to actually let your guard down. It is possible to actually trust the person that they're going to give you the right thing. Yeah, well, if I'm doping, I'm doing it very badly, judging by some of the times. <laughs> Just, uh, Jerry, when we look at the, the seven fastest men in history, Usain Bolt, Joan Blake, Tyson Gay, Asafa Powell, Nesta Carter, Maurice Green, and Justin Gatlin. So, mm-hmm. 
uh, Blake, Gay, Powell and Gatlin, two, three, four and seven on the list of the seven fastest men, have all at some stage or another sort of let their guard down. Uh, well, well, yeah, well, well, well. Gatlin certainly, Gatlin certainly is. Um, I mean, he's been caught twice. I mean, I'm, I, he should never have been allowed back into the sport the second time round. The first time round, it was a, it was amphetamines because he claimed he had uh, he had ADD and and it was something else the next time round. So he's he's a totally discredited figure. And I suppose as well, um, um, the chap that won in two thousand and four in Athens as well, he was caught giving a tranche. The of question is. To, yeah, the question Sorry? really is, I suppose, about Usain Bolt, though, that can we believe in a guy who is clean, as all the tests show Usain Bolt? Can we believe fully in the in him, given that he's the guys he's beating, most of them are found to be dopers? Well, Owen, would you believe it? I believe in him. I believe in him. Maybe it's because I want to believe in him. Um, I do believe in him. He was he was incredibly talented at the age of 16. He was running under 20 seconds uh, for 200 metres. Um, I don't know if anybody has ever done that su- subsequently. So he was a person who had tremendous talent. He was known as a, a, as a party animal. So when he came along in 2000, I think it was the 31st of May 2008 here on the World Record for the 100 metres, I wasn't overly surprised because I'd heard that he'd knuckled down to training. Wasn't surprised at all. Now maybe I'd be cut out. Maybe, maybe, maybe he'll test positive. Maybe he won't. But as of this moment in time, I believe in him. Jerry Carden, thanks so much for talking. All right. I see Tyson Gay Ken isn't going to go quietly. He's happy to speak about what he knows. Yeah, um, this is what he has to say. He says, "I'm going to be honest with you, Sada, about everything. Everybody I've been with, every supplement I've ever taken, every company I've ever dealt with, everything." So. Quite a lot of uh, people involved in the career of Tyson Gay and the and US athletics generally sort of maybe a little bit shifting uh, uncomfortably in their seats. Twitchy about that news. Just how much is Tyson Gay going to say? We're just about finished up for today, but don't mentally check out just yet. I want to hold your attention for about 30 seconds to remind you Second Captains Live, our first outside broadcast of 2013, takes place next Thursday. So it's Thursday week, depends when you're listed to this, but 25th of July, featuring Richie Sadler, Eamon Dunphy, Ushin McConville, Anthony Moyles, Jason Sherlock. It's going to be absolutely incredible. If you want to be there, email live at secondcaptains.com. We'll get back to you on that email address. Murph, there's also going to be a very special live P. Bezo. Yeah, uh, you're, you're going to have to go over and above uh, the Call of Duty here, though. We need pictorial evidence of you holding a sign that says hashtag PBezzo uh, and telling us where we are. So if you're on Easter Island, get the heads in the background and that sign. So this is in advance of it, to get involved. Yeah, you have to and then on the night, we shall present it for uh, the very exclusive audience that will be there with us in the Grand Social on the 25th of July. Sounds good. Check us out on Twitter at Second Captains, facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. It's been good chatting today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks, lads. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Thanks, Ken. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 